I'd like you to please turn to Exodus chapter 19 as we begin our series through the Ten Commandments. And we called this series Learning to Love the Law. And in our modern world, the reason why we need something like this, where we are reminded of the goodness of the law and where we are seeking to cultivate in ourselves hearts that have true affection for it, it's because in the world that we find ourselves in, we often see the law almost by default, almost automatically without thinking of it. We see the law as something negative, as something limiting, or as something oppressive, or as a necessary evil where maybe at best it can curb our excesses, it can limit our sin, it can prevent total self-destruction. Or maybe we see the law as sort of an impossible ideal that's good to strive for and good to hold in theory, but doesn't actually work or is totally unattainable in practice. The fact is that rarely, if we're truly being honest with ourselves and truly examining our hearts, as I prayed, rarely can we say with David, with sincerity, oh, how I love your law. Or can we say that the law is uh, sweeter than honey and it's more desired, desirable than gold? In our hearts, can we truly, legitimately, and with all sincerity and integrity say that? And I'm talking not only about evangelicalism, Christianity at large. I'm talking about us here tonight who are Reformed Christians, biblical Christians, Christians who love the Word of God, who understand historic orthodoxy, who will doctrinally affirm that the law is good and that it is, it's not some necessary evil. It doesn't only exist to limit sin, but it is good. It is a revelation of God's character. We affirm all those things, but truly, personally, in our hearts is our attitude towards the law what it ought to be? Does it rise to that level of fervent love that we see in scripture, that we see in the Psalms, that we see in Jesus Christ himself? Do we actually love the law in our hearts with that affection, the way that we're called to? Because the reality is we don't like to feel limited. We don't like to feel hindered. And in our world where we we have this idea of liberty and license. We live in such this libertarian world where almost we have like no limitations unless they're self-imposed limitations. We can have whatever food, as much food as we want pretty much all the time. We can, you know, go online and look up any fact and watch any video and listen to any song anytime, all the time. Just in general, we live in a world where there are there's very little restraint in any way. And so we see any law, any any sort of a regulation of our freedom, we kind of have a negative knee-jerk reaction against it. Any prohibition, we sort of automatically respond negatively to, even, you know, like instinctively before thinking about it. That seems to be the nature of the world that we live in today. And that, in part, is what makes this study through the commandments so necessary and so timely. Because if we're not constantly and intentionally reminding ourselves of the glory and beauty and goodness of the law, and if we're not regularly praying that God would truly shape our hearts and mold us to genuinely love his law and have actual affection for it, then we're not going to... We're not going to manifest the fruit that we're called to towards the law. We're not going to automatically sort of acquire an attitude of love towards the law that we're called to have. We need to be very intentional and prayerful about this. 
And also, kind of as we spoke about this morning, we need to be honest in recognizing the consequences of Christians losing this love for the law and subsequently minimizing the law or altogether ignoring the law, not only in the church, but also in the broader culture. Because true understanding of the law must necessarily result in the application of the law. We can understand kind of in theory, we can understand concepts and say, okay, I can read this and I can look at it and I can see why this is positive, why this is good for me personally, for my family, for my church, and for culture. But if we really understand it, then we're going to actually apply it and seek to live by it. But if we see the law as something negative, something to be ashamed of, something to sort of, you know, blush about and gloss over or to minimize or to say, yeah, that was then and, you know, but it's not really as in force now. If we see the law in that way, then we're not going to apply it either on our personal lives or in our public life. And as my dad preached this morning, we are experiencing what happens in public life when respect for God's law has been cast aside, when the law is not enforced, when it's not applied, when it's relativized or spiritualized, or it's put as something that was binding in the past but is no longer binding today, or if it's ignored, then only that can lead to chaos, destruction, death, and damnation ultimately. So that's partially what makes this study necessary. Now, one of the reasons why we kind of have this negative reaction, aside from the world that we're living in, the water that we're swimming in, we have a negative reaction towards the law because oftentimes we read the Ten Commandments and we think of them in sort of moralistic or legalistic terms. We often, you know, many of us, if not all of us, have at one time or another memorized the Ten Commandments. When you're a little kid, you memorize the Ten Commandments and you're taught, obey the commands because then you'll stay out of trouble. This is God's law. We obey it because he says so and God makes the rules and you better obey or else you're going to be in trouble. And that's, that's a decent understanding for children as you're starting to teach these things. But as we grow in maturity and even as we're seeking to bring up our young people in the true fear of the Lord and a true love for God and love for his law, we need to understand that the Ten Commandments don't come down from heaven on these golden plates. They don't just descend out of nowhere, but they come to us in a real historical context. And that context gives us a lot more depth of understanding of the commandments themselves, rather than this sort of moralistic perspective that we tend to be raised with. See, that moralistic understanding, it can't lead to the heartfelt love that we ought to feel towards God's law as Christians. Because the reality is that the law is not a cold, stony, condemning letter from God, but the law is a loving, liberating, and life-giving proclamation of the way of blessing, and it comes from the Creator Himself. And so, if we're going to truly understand, appreciate, and love the Ten Commandments the way that we ought to, we need to understand the context. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to start laying the foundation, give some context to the commandments, and then understand why that's relevant and also why all these commands still apply today. So our text, Exodus 19, beginning in verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches that mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourselves warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would bless this time in the word. I pray, Father, that everything that is proclaimed here tonight would be true and accurate, Lord God, that by your spirit you would be working to take my words and the efforts that I've put in, and Lord, that you would speak through me as merely a vessel, Lord. I pray, God, that you would do with you will, do what you will with this message, that you would utilize it to more and more conform us to your image and to truly build in us, construct in us a genuine love for your law. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Ten Commandments.
are given to us first and foremost in the context of covenant and particularly the context of the old covenant. And so here we have this prelude, a prologue to the commandments. And he begins in verse four saying, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So as God begins introducing his law and introducing his commands, he reminds them of the tangible, recently, like literally experiential um, historical mercy that he had just worked for the people of Israel, which was according to his covenant promise. To understand the commandments, we need to have at least a basic understanding of what's come before. Now, we're not going to go into it tonight, but when God delivered the people out of the land of Egypt with his mighty hand, when he conquered the Egyptians and took his captive people and brought them out, he was fulfilling a covenant promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 15, where he said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants are going to be sojourners and slaves in a land that is not their own, and they're going to suffer affliction for 400 years, but I will deliver them with a mighty hand. God promised Abraham centuries earlier that this was what was going to happen. His people would be slaves, they would be exiles, they would be aliens, and then they would be delivered and brought into the promised land of Canaan. And then in Exodus 2, after those 400 years of slavery, the people are crying out to the Lord from their bondage, and we're told that God heard them, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here now, at the beginning, as God is getting ready to dictate his law to the people, he reminds them that he has just fulfilled that covenant promise that he made to their father Abraham and their forefathers that God has fulfilled that promise. He's delivered them from slavery. They have experienced fulfillment. They have experienced mercy and grace. God has just revealed himself to this people to be the supreme power in all the universe. He conquered Pharaoh. He conquered the gods of Egypt, and he had freely and mightily and powerfully saved his chosen people from their captivity. God had done exactly what he had promised to do in keeping with his covenant. And God had done this for a specific purpose. This is something that even as Christians today, sometimes we don't fully understand. God does not save simply for its own sake. He does not grant salvation to people just to do it, but God saves for a purpose. He grants salvation from one thing and unto something else. He delivered the people of Israel from slavery unto service to him, liberty to serve and to worship him. And multiple times we see throughout the Exodus event, God makes this abundantly clear that he is delivering Israel, not just so that they can go out and do their own thing, not so that they can have their own version of liberty and law and freedom, but he delivers the people of Israel so that they can worship and serve him. He says this to to Moses, when he first calls the, uh, calls him to be the deliverer, he says to Moses that he is going to uh, bring his people out to this mountain where they will worship him. And then throughout Moses' interactions with Pharaoh, he says, let my people go that they may go to the wilderness and serve me. Let my people go that they may hold a feast for me. Let my people go that they may worship me. 
a significant purpose of the old covenant was to establish and preserve true worship of the one true and living God. And so then the purpose of the Exodus event was that God's people would be freed from the tyranny of serving false gods and would be set free to serve the true God in terms of his covenant. That's the first thing to understand. God did not save Israel simply because he loves to liberate people in bondage. God saved Israel because they were under the tyranny of false gods, worship of demons in Egypt, and he rescued them so that they would be free to worship and serve him in spirit and in truth, just as he would reveal. And all of this is a picture of God's free grace. And it's no coincidence that God puts that at the very beginning of the preamble to the law. He opens up with this reminder and proclamation of his free grace and mercy on the people of Israel, that God chose Israel and he actively, intentionally, personally, and deliberately redeemed Israel from their slavery. Now, some mistakenly believe that if you go down in verse 8, when the people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and then later on in Exodus, they say the same thing when they're sprinkled with the blood of the covenant, some will mistakenly believe that when Israel said that, it established some sort of works righteousness or some sort of salvation by law under the old covenant, that the people of Israel accepted the law and now they had to keep it perfectly if they were to live. That's incorrect. See, the reality, because God opens up reminding them of what he had just done, the people were already in covenant with God. The people were already recipients of God's redeeming grace and mercy of his powerful deliverance. And they did nothing to earn that salvation from slavery. The people of Israel did nothing to deserve God's blessing. God freely chose Abraham, entered into covenant with him, and kept his covenant promises by delivering the people of Israel out from the land of slavery. And he delivered them um, and was ready now to dictate to them his law, which was a law that was radically different from the law of the false gods in Egypt, from the false worship in the land of Egypt. And so first thing to understand, God is already in covenant with the people of Israel. They are already the objects of his love and affection. And now, only after he has delivered and redeemed them, does he begin to proclaim his law to them, the law that they are called to obey as the chosen and redeemed people of God. And as God is consecrating them as a nation. And that's another really important point that we can't miss when it comes to the Ten Commandments. The occasion for God dictating his law to us in the word and inscribing it with his finger is that the people of God, then the people of Israel are being consecrated into a nation. They are being taken from, from being a captive alien people, sojourners in the land of Egypt, and they're being made into a a royal nation in their own land with their own borders and boundaries. And so any nation, any kingdom, any people needs to have a law. And so God is saying, you were slaves and as slaves, you were under this law of wickedness, this law of these false gods, the the law of Pharaoh. 
a law that enslaved you. You had been under that, but now you are going to be a nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And so you were to live by this law in your nation. They were to be a shadow of the kingdom of God, the old covenant manifestation of the kingdom of God that one day would come in force on earth as it is in heaven. But they were to foreshadow that. And so therefore, the law, the Ten Commandments, it teaches the people how to live in the covenant kingdom of priests that they have been delivered to be. Verses 5 and 6, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God had already delivered them. He had set them free. He had blessed them. He had already chosen them. And it says it right there in verse 5. He says that all the earth is mine. You are my treasured possession. He had already chosen them. But now he says, therefore, if you are to live up to your calling, God had called them to be a holy nation. He had called them to be different from the Egyptians. He had called them to be the light of truth and uh genuine worship of the true and living God, of true religion. So he says, this is who you are. This is who I've called you to be, who I've delivered you to be. Now, if you are going to live up to this calling, here's how. This is the law by which you are to live. And so still emphasize implicitly here is that tremendous grace, the free grace. When God says, all the earth is mine, God could have chosen any nation anywhere on all the face of the earth to bring his true law, to, to deliver his law. This is the word of truth. And I emphasize this a lot because I think sometimes we forget about this. At this time, the world was in darkness. There was no knowledge of the true and living God. There was no revelation of God. The nations, the peoples, they had been left to their own devices to grope around in deep darkness. It's not like it is today where maybe there are a scattered few places on the earth where there's true deep darkness where the name of Christ has never been uttered. At this time, there was nowhere in the earth that had true religion. And God chose to take the man Abraham and to take his descendants and to make them the heirs of the truth, the recipients of his law and the practitioners of true religion. He chose them to represent him, to receive his holy law, to reflect his glory to all the world. Israel was blessed with God's call. That's free grace. That's undeserved, unmerited favor on the people of Israel. God had called them. God had chosen them. But the way for them to show that God had chosen them, the way to walk in the blessing God had, li- had, had given to them was to live by the law. That's the thing. Our lives are not empty vessels. Our lives have content. We can say, I've been chosen by God. I'm a Christian. But if that title isn't filled up with the content of what the Christian life looks like, which is God's law, then it doesn't mean anything. Israel could have said, We are God's chosen people. We are a holy nation. And later in their history, they did do just that. They said, we are God's people. We have the temple. We have all the all the trappings of outward religion. But if you're not living by the law, what does that mean? The law gives content. It fills up the people. It actually demonstrates that they really are the called out people that God says that they are. 
And so there's great responsibility with this calling. And also, it's important to point out and to not make this mistake, there is real conditionality under the old covenant. It's not salvation by works, but sometimes we want to make the old covenant and the new covenant exactly the same. But that's a mistake because in the old covenant, I mean, and you see it here in verse five, therefore, if you will obey my voice, then you will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So while God had called them, God had delivered them all by free grace, maintaining the blessings of the covenant, actually receiving everything that was promised to Abraham did require obedience to God's law. God gave them real conditions by which to remain in the land, by which to experience the blessings of the covenant. You see this especially throughout the book of Deuteronomy. God lists off, if you obey the law, here's the blessings you're going to receive. If you disobey the law, here's the curses that are going to come upon you. And so God absolutely, under the old covenant, there is there are conditions to remain in the covenant. The law had to be upheld. Now, of course, the law is perfect and nobody is able to live up to it. And that's why God provided under the old covenant system a means of repentance and atonement for disobedience through the sacrifices, the sacrificial system that he would set up just a little bit after this. And so the people did have that means of atonement even under the old covenant. But it's important for us just to grasp there are real conditions under the old covenant. And so in order to maintain the blessing from God and the liberty that God had graciously given to Israel, they were required to obey the law that he was about to dictate or else they would be disinherited, which of course eventually they were. They were exiled from the land. They were kicked out. They were disowned by God. And this was true personally for individuals to observe the law, to keep the law, to receive the blessings of obedience, the blessings of the covenant. It was also true of the people corporately, the national life as the covenant community. And you see this, for instance, throughout the book of Proverbs, there's instructions generally for individuals that apply the law of God to daily life. It says, you know, don't be an adulterer. If you, you know, if you're an adulterer, these are the things that are going to happen. You want to be blessed? Work hard. You want to be blessed? Um, you know, don't be a sluggard. Don't be lazy, right? We read Proverbs. You see the general wisdom of God's law applied to life and blessing follows. And so for individuals, receiving blessing was dependent on obedience, generally speaking. The same is true of the nation. And you could see throughout the case law system, uh, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments applied to the civil sphere. Again, similar to what we talked about this morning with murder and all the laws that flow from you shall not murder. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout God giving the law, he says, okay, you shall not murder. So what happens if your bad ox kills someone? What, what are the penalties for that? What's the civil consequences for that? What are the civil consequences for someone caught in adultery? All of that. So the law applies to individuals. It applies to the nation and blessing is contingent on it. But it's important to understand all of this is liberating for the people. They're coming out of slavery. This is the law of life and of liberty, and it leads to blessing. The promise from God is he gives this law, and it leads to good blessings. 
It's not a threat hanging over the people like we often think of it. It's not a burden that the people are languishing under trying to bear up, but the law in its proper place is a charter of liberty. It's the wisdom of the creator communicated to his creatures, applied to the creation order. And the proper response to this then is love, thankfulness, rejoicing, and obedience. So we see in the prelude to the law, the nearness of God, the mercy of God. We see also the um, the conditions of life and blessing and liberty for the people to be a nation that is truly free. And we also see the emphasis on the nature and character of God. And that's very evident throughout chapter 19, which we read. On the one side, you see the covenant love and the nearness of God to his people. We see um, that they... Again, they are his people. He's called them out. They are holy. They are set apart. And yet, right alongside of that, you see the inescapable reality of God's holiness and of the people's unholiness. And then the terrifying fear that follows from that realization. We see God giving strict instructions to the people for his visitation on Mount Sinai to be enforced on pain of death. And that's because their sinfulness made them unable to approach God. So if you look at verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain, not to touch the edge of it. For whoever touches the mountains shall be put to death. So God strictly enforces on pain of death these regulations that God in all of his holiness and glory and majesty is going to descend on Mount Sinai. He's going to visit the people. And because God is holy and they are not, They can't even come near the mountain. They can't even touch the mountain or else they'll be struck down. And then additionally, you have the audible, visible, supernatural phenomena that accompany God's visitation beginning in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So you see God arriving with thunder and lightning and clouds and fire and smoke, and the mountain itself trembling, this supernatural phenomena that we're witnessing here, God coming in strength and in holiness and in power, impressing on the people the radical division that exists between them, that God is unlike anything in all creation. He's unlike them. And that's a frightening, terrifying reality. He commands the most powerful forces in creation. And now this God has called them to be his people. He has rescued them from slavery and he is now giving his law to them. And the result is understandable fear and trembling on the part of the people. And so you see these two sides, even in the prologue, as we get ready to explore the law, we see the nearness of God to his people 
The law is a revelation of God's character. The law draws us near to God because it helps us to understand who God is. The law enables us to imitate God, to be like God. It's a means of us drawing near to him. And it's a blessing to be a recipient of the law, to be chosen by God is to remind us of his grace and his mercy that he has chosen us to represent him in creation, to be reflections of his glory in all creation. So we see that, but also the law is terrifying because it reveals the unapproachable holiness of God. The law reveals the perfectly righteous character of God, and the law also exposes our own sin. The law cuts us deep because when we read the commands and we understand them rightly, we understand that we cannot keep them. We can't bridge the gap. We are unholy. God is holy. This is the law. We can't obey it. We can't fulfill it. So there's both sides. The Ten Commandments, you have the blessing, the mercy, the nearness of God and revelation of his character, but also the frightening reminder of his holiness and our unholiness. God is holy. He is blessed. He is gracious. He is loving. He is a father to his people, but he is also a just judge against sin. So from the outset, we see highlighted both sides of this. The loving kindness and nearness of God to his people and the frightening reality of God's holiness and his wrath and his judgment against sin. So this is the Ten Commandments in their own context. It's a a reminder to Israel, first of all, of God's merciful, powerful deliverance of them from captivity to liberty. It is their uh, consecration as a nation, a royal people, a holy nation, a kingdom of God on the earth. And it reveals both the graciousness of God and the unapproachable, terrifying holiness of God. And all of this happens under the structure, under the system, and under the terms of the Old Covenant. So it's important for us to understand all of that as we begin this study. But what about now? What about today? Because sometimes when you think about all the old covenant realities surrounding the Ten Commandments, that it's not just a list that we put up on the wall in Sunday school or outside of a courthouse, that this was given to a real people at a particular time and place for a particular purpose. So what about now? What about us? We are new covenant believers. We have been made righteous by Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. We have received his righteousness. And so does the law still apply to us in a similar way that it applied to Israel. Now, many Christians today want to downplay the significance of the law, and they'll argue that this was unique to Old Covenant Israel, and that the law's application to us today is very narrow and very limited. But this attitude is radically off base, is far from the truth. Jesus himself opens and closes his ministry with uh, the, with the fact that he's upholding the law. Matthew 5, do we have our slides tonight? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus opened his public ministry in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount, proclaiming that the law is not done away with. He did not come to nullify the law, but he came to fulfill it and to put it into force. He came to establish the law, not just for the people of Israel, but in all creation. And he makes that clear in Matthew 28, the end of his ministry, 
He said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus leaves his disciples with the great commission, calling them to go forth into the world, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples and teaching them to obey what? to obey the law. The new covenant does not in any way do away with the law. It is as relevant and as binding today as ever, and not just for Christians, but for all people. And that's another area where we tend to get mixed up and mistaken. We think the law applies to Christians, but we can't expect non-Christians to live according to the law. That's true in a sense, because they're sinners and they can't obey the law, but they are still accountable to the law. And the reality is that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, have always for all time been the standard for all people because God's the creator. It's simply the law for creation. God made the world. He sets the terms, the boundaries, the limits of the world. He dictates reality. And the law is simply living according to reality. There is one God. He made us in his image. He made marriage between one man and one woman. The law of God is life according to reality as God made it. And as such, adherence to the law is the general and normative means of blessing for all people, not just for the covenant people of God. So we talked about that a little bit, that specifically in the old covenant, there were promises like the land and the prosperity of the land and things like that, that were um, attached to obedience for the people of Israel. But in general, for all people, the law is a means of blessing. This is clear in Deuteronomy chapter 4. God says, Keep the law and do them, for this will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear of these righteous statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You know what God is saying there to the people? God and Moses are saying that Israel was to be a light to the nations around her. Israel was to obey the law, to live as God's people, to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the surrounding nations were going to see that and they were going to be drawn and attracted to it. They would see the goodness and the blessing and the fruitfulness that flowed from obeying the law of God. And so they would be drawn to the people of Israel because obeying the law leads, generally speaking, to blessing. We talked about Proverbs. One example or illustration of this, we don't often like to think in these terms because sometimes it can be applied in a legalistic way or it can sound like works righteousness. But the word of God makes it clear that obeying the law leads, generally speaking, to blessing. All you have to do is think about a married couple who's not Christian in any way, never been to church, but they get married, they stay married, they don't commit to, uh, commit adultery, they don't get divorced, they stay with one another, and they raise their kids. Even if they are not Christians, they're not saved, they're not going to heaven, they're not in Christ, yet the fact that they have a stable marriage and they raise their kids in a stable marriage, that's a blessing. There's going to be blessing that follows from that. 
And you can apply that to the grand scale on the nation when most people are doing that. Generally speaking, there's going to be blessing. We understand that. It's simple. Obeying God's law and adhering to it generally leads to blessing. Now, after the enthronement of Christ, after Christ is crucified, resurrected, and ascended, True religion that we talked about in the Old Covenant was limited to the people of Israel. That true religion is unleashed, right? Christ commands us to go, disciple, and teach the nations. And so, rather than saying the law no longer applies in the New Covenant, the reality is that accountability for all people to acknowledge the law, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, because he's seated on the throne, that accountability increases under the New Covenant. Paul makes this point in Acts 17. I think I skipped one, but that's okay. I see the clock. Oh, do we not have that? That's okay. We can go back to 1 Timothy 8 because this is another good point. Um, Paul makes the point in Acts 17 that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and he's given evidence of this by raising him from the dead. So the all the accountability to the law increases under the new covenant. And throughout the New Testament, you see the law applied. First Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy. He is instructing him on how to minister in the church of God's people. And he says, um, go to the next one. I might have given the wrong text. I'm sorry, guys. I did not review the slides. Um, 1 Timothy 1 Beginning in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedience, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, fifth commandment, for murderers, sixth commandment, for the sexually immoral, the seventh commandment, men who practice homosexuality, also the seventh commandment, enslavers, that's the eighth commandment, liars, ninth commandment, perjurers, ninth commandment. You see Paul applying the law, and he says that it applies to all people. He's writing it to the church, to Timothy, as a pastor, minister in the church. The law, the Old Testament, Ten Commandments apply to all people. And that's because God's creation order has not changed. The way of blessedness has not changed. And so today, the law remains as binding and as relevant as ever. Now for Christians, and this is where we'll finish up, We understand, just like Old Covenant Israel, who was chosen by God, even though all the earth belongs to him, he chose them. We understand that free grace and that free blessing. We understand that it is a blessing that God has chosen to reveal his law to us. He has made us its stewards, and he has called us to go forth into the world and proclaim it. And so as New Covenant believers, we Again, our responsibility, our love for the law, our understanding and application of the law should only increase because all of the types from the old covenant, we've experienced their fulfillment. So as here in Exodus, when God descends onto Mount Sinai and dictates his law to the people, 
In the new covenant, we have the incarnate God going up the mountain, preaching his sermon to his disciples and expounding on the law and proclaiming their law. And then again, with the great commission, the kingdom of God is consecrated. So not the old covenant shadow kingdom of God, but the new covenant, true kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Christ with all authority in heaven and on earth on the throne consecrates us as his kingdom people to live as a holy nation and as a royal priesthood here on earth. We're given a law. We are given a mission and we are to, unlike Israel, where they in Deuteronomy 4 were to obey the law, be a light. The nations were to see that and envy it and flow to it. We don't do that. Instead, we apply the law. We live by the law, but we go out and we get the nations. We go to the darkness and we proclaim the truth, the gospel and the law, which flows from it. And just as God taught Israel a way of life that would lead to blessing and that would guard the liberty that he delivered them unto, that he rescued them for. So we, as the new covenant people who have experienced true deliverance from bondage to sin, not the Exodus event, which was a type and a shadow. Yes, it was a real and mighty deliverance, but what we've experienced, if you are in Christ and he has rescued you from your sin, is infinitely greater than the physical deliverance that Israel received. Just as they were able to look back on the signs and wonders, the mighty works that God had done, what we get to look back on, what God has done for us to rescue us from our bondage is far greater than that. And so we are called to live now according to the law of liberty, as James calls it. We have undergone the true exodus. A few scripture passages, John 8, Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Romans 6, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. And then Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What we as new covenant Christians, those who are in Christ have experienced is deliverance from a profoundly gripping slavery to sin and death and destruction and darkness. We have been set free from that and we have been given a law by which to live. So just as Israel was set free from their enslavement in Egypt and were set free to live as a liberated people according to the law of God, we experience the same. We experience the reality that the Exodus could only point to in dark shadows. And thus, we should have an even more exalted view of God's law. Turn to Hebrews 12 as we close out. Because this is the greatest difference between the old covenant and the new. And the it, it really speaks to the the intensity with which we should desire the law even more than the old covenant people did. If David was able to proclaim and sing about his love for the law, having only seen the types and the shadows and seen things from far away, kind of fuzzy and blurry, how much more should we with clarity love and obey the law? So in Exodus, 
you have, of course, the stark picture that we read tonight is the holiness of God, the terror of God, and the people's inability to approach him. That's the old covenant. But here, Hebrews 12, verse 18 For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to this assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, we approach the mountain. We approach God. The gap has been bridged by Christ. And so the old covenant people, there was separation, there was alienation. There was that stark reminder of God's unapproachable holiness. Yes, we worship the same all-consuming fire of a God. We do. Only we've been made holy. We are not unclean like the people of Israel who had to wash their garments and cleanse themselves. We've been cleansed once for all by the blood of Christ. We don't need to bring sacrifices. The once for all sacrifice has been made on our behalf. And so we have confidence that even though we still can't perfectly live up to the law, even though we stumble and we fail, we have confidence that that sacrifice has been made on our behalf. And so we are not slaves, but we are sons of God. And so we live now as sons of God by how? By conforming to his law of liberty, that good law of God. We love it, we apply it, and we obey it because our guilt has been removed and we now approach God freely because of what Christ did. 